thoughts on that remarkable passage. <laughs> we'll have to come to that another time. However, there are some common themes between our Old Testament passage and the New Testament, not least a key word which you may well have picked up on. But I'm going to pray first of all. I thank you, gracious God, for your word. Uh, the, the scriptures tell us that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. We want to be people who tremble at your word, as Isaiah puts it, people who are deeply desiring to submit to the authority of your word, to live out your word in our lives. And we pray as we, can, as we turn again to a particular part of your word today, that you would give us uh, gracious and humble hearts to hear what you're saying to us and how we can put that into practice for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we come back to our Italian friend Malachi, Malachi, and the passage which, uh, which was read to us from chapter 2. Let me say, by the way, you'll be aware that we live in difficult times where the Marriage Act is uh, threatened. Indeed, the very institution of marriage is under threat in many ways, and people who are trying to define, redefine the nature of marriage is, a, is a, a serious challenge to Christian people, how we respond to this and how we can maintain what is an absolutely foundational building block of any civilised society, any civilised culture. So we ought, we ought to be uh, concerned about this, we ought to be prayerful about this, we ought to be people who look to the scriptures as to we, we, where we take our stand. Now, one of the things about expository preaching, you know what I mean by expository preaching, where we take a text of scripture and open it up and allow the text to speak for itself. We don't read into it what we want to find there, but allow it to open it up and speak for itself. Dealing with the text of scripture and the whole books of the Bible, one of the things about that is the preacher can't get on his personal hobby horse. And uh, more than that, he can't avoid the difficult passages of Scripture. He might be determined to skip over. No dodging the difficult texts of Scripture. Now, we all have a tendency to return to those favourite passages, just as we want to see our favourite hymns on the hymn board when we come on Sunday. I was in a church once who everyone was allowed to choose their favourite hymns. That's like sort of anarchy. <laughs> you don't know where that's going to end. So we're all a bit t in, in danger of that temptation but the preacher must not resort to picking the eyes out of the text, but must preach the whole counsel of God. That's what Paul says in that great final speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, preach the whole counsel of God. In that moving farewell, as he addresses the elders from the church in Ephesus, this is what he says. I'll just remind you of this. Now I know that none of you... Uh, among you, if I might go on about preaching, uh, the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. And then he adds, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Keep watch over yourselves as well as the, uh, those whom God has made you overseers, the flock. So it's fitting that the preacher... Resist the temptation to skip over those difficult, thorny passages, those parts of the Bible that might cause offence. Well, we have one of those such passages this morning, Malachi 2, 10 to 16. Indeed, let me say that one approaches this subject with something of fear and trepidation because you can be reasonably sure that a significant proportion of your congregation will be in this situation. Let me say, by the way, as a word of personal testimony, 
in our own family. We've had to struggle with this, a daughter who's been abandoned by a husband and the, the uh, terribly painful uh, aspects of that. So we have very personal acquaintance with this, this painful issue. Uh, for such people, of course, there is deep emotional hurt, there are scars, the sense of failure that they might carry with them is very real, and I am, of course, talking about the issue of divorce. Uh, mind you, this is not the only matter that the prophet deals with in this passage here. He talks about breaking faith with Yahweh. Breaking faith is a very powerful expression, isn't it? And a very real expression. You see, there's a double danger here in this passage. Uh, there is intermarrying with pagan nations as well as the issue of divorce. So there's a sort of two-edged issue to this, this matter before us. Now, Malachi wasn't the only prophet to speak about uh, marriage with those who didn't share the faith of Yahweh. As Ezra and Nehemiah both spoke about it, uh, as God's people returned from their 70 years of exile in Babylon. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 9, again in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, a study of these marriage alliances with their pagan neighbours meant the inevitable compromise of true religion. It's pretty difficult to maintain your purity, your absolute devotion to God if you're going to engage with marriage to someone who follows a foreign god. Indeed, here in verse 11, it's referred to as marrying the daughter of a foreign god. That is, the, the god of that nation and the culture associated with it is so intertwined, uh, it's, it's impossible to separate out the, the crisis of faith that that presupposes. You see, the close connection between the individual and the culture in which it grows up is very real. Now, I find this passage immensely practical, even as we instinctively shrink from examining what the Bible has to say on these difficult and painful matters. Indeed, it's worth, uh, for a moment, reflecting on the different attitudes between the three great religions which we encounter here in Australia and their attitude towards divorce. Uh, it's generally agreed, by the way, though that is somewhat modified today and uh, particularly where we want to show compassion towards people struggling in this area, it's generally agreed that Christianity is opposed to divorce per se. Fifty years ago, uh, you and I were growing up and the subject came up, pretty un everyone knew where the Christian faith stood on, on this matter. And, uh, and that's why, of course... Uh, the, what we might call the commitment to it, the indissolubility of marriage as expressed in our prayer book service of marriage and something which we should not lose sight of. Uh, I'm reminded, by the way, of the story about Calvin Coolidge, who was the one-time President of the United States. Uh, Coolidge was a man of few words. He used to go to church regularly and uh, said on one occasion he came home from church and uh, sauntered into the house and his wife said to him, Oh, you've been to church? Yes. How was church? Good. What did the preacher preach about? Divorce. Well, what, what did he say? He's against it. <laughs> he was a man of few words. And uh, so one can understand uh, what was going on in that, in that situation. Now, as I say, the New Testament clearly uh, advocates the indissolubility of marriage. It is a stable building block of God's society. The most well-known passage, of course, comes to us from the lips of Jesus in the passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.32, this is what Jesus says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, 
But I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let me say a cautionary word here, by the way. Uh, We'll see this in a moment. That uh, in the culture of Judaism, whether it's in Malachi's day or in the first century, uh, there there were men who were treating their marriage commitments in a disgraceful way. Utterly disgraceful. And so we want to answer that's the primary thrust of both what Jesus says and, of course, what we read in Malachi. I want you to think about that, and all the men present need to think very, very seriously about, the, about this issue. Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount on face value seems pretty clear and uncompromising, a very clear standard which Jesus sets for the people of God. Now, Judaism, on the other hand, allows divorce even without any cause. This appears to be the case in the text the rabbis referred to from Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. This is in the Mosaic law. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends it from his house and if after she leaves the house she becomes a wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, what are these men up to, you might well be asking. He gives it to her and sends her away. Uh, or he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again. Or she has been defiled. Got the image of what's happening here? This is like, this is a disgraceful, indecent thing which is going on. This is sort of behind the Mosaic law. Now there's been some debate, of course, among Jewish scholars because of their disagreement over what the interpretation of the words displeasing, indecency, and dislikes actually mean in the passage. You picked it up there. She becomes displeasing to him. What does all that that mean? The Talmud, which is one of the great defining books of Judaism, certainly right through into the Middle Ages, along with the Mishnah, which is like a sort of running commentary on the text, the Talmud and the Mishnah record different opinions about what Judaism taught. So if the rabbinic schools, the school of Shammai, held that a man should not divorce his wife unless he had found her guilty of some sexual misconduct. The more liberal school of Hillel says that he may divorce his wife even if she has merely spoiled his dinner. Rabbi Akebar says a man may divorce his wife if he simply finds another woman more beautiful than her. This sort of opens the floodgates. Generally then, it was the line that prevailed and became the unbroken tradition of Judaism and Jewish law to give the husband freedom to divorce his wife without any real cause at all. Indeed, if you delve into the books of the Apocrypha, not in most of our Bibles, some would say thankfully, it seems to suggest that if the husband not only has the right to divorce his displeasing wife, but considers that it's an obligation to divorce a bad wife. Listen to Ecclesiasticus 25.25. A bad wife brings humiliation, downcast looks and a wounded heart, slack of hand and weak of knee as the man whose wife fails to make him happy. Woman is the origin of sin and it is through her that we all die. Do not leave a leaky cistern to drip or allow a bad wife to say what she, what she likes if she does not accept your control, divorce her and send her away. Let me say the women present here this morning might be very glad 
that this is not part of the Bible or we might have some Bible burning going on after church this morning. Isn't that true? This is outrageous stuff when you start to think about it. It's sometimes said that Islam occupies the middle ground between a strong Christian position on the indissolubility of marriage and this extraordinary liberal view which we find in Judaism. Even though it's commonly believed that a Muslim man may divorce his marriage by saying to his wife, talak, 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 meaning I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, it's not quite as simple as that. And most Muslims believe in regard to the talak that there must be an interval of one month between each talak pronouncement. And in modern Islamic scholars suggest that the talak and divorce is strongly condemned within Islam. And if the couple are experiencing difficulties, they should appoint an arbitrator or a conciliator who, in fact, will resolve or attempt to resolve the matter. Now, any discussion of divorce among Christian people must have both a theological and a pastoral dimension to it. We need to take seriously what God is saying through his word, the Bible, but equally we must take very seriously the pain and the hurt that many have experienced in what are sometimes abusive and damaging marriages. I've had to deal with situations like this. I remember in my first position as a curate in Canberra, I visited this young woman who had been beaten up by her husband. She ended up in in, uh, Canberra Hospital. I tried to follow up later and was absolutely appalled to learn he killed the woman. That is absolutely horrendous. That that sort of behaviour absolutely cannot find any tolerance within a civilised society, let alone among the people of God. Which brings us back to those words in Malachi 2.16. Very confronting words. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man covering himself with violence as with a garment. Interestingly enough, that expression, by the way, covering himself, this is a reference to the Jewish custom when a man marries a woman and throws his cloak over her, claiming her to be his own. This covering uh, image. Now, the passage from Malachi in verse 16 sounds like an extreme position, hardly the sort of statement that would send you running to God in your trouble. The very extreme language, I hate divorce. Remember, of course, in Semitic language, there were two Semitic extremes. There was, there was no middle ground. You either hated or loved. If God doesn't love divorce, then he hates it. Semitic extremism in the language. But it is a confronting statement. So the first main thing I want you to focus on this morning as we deal with this somewhat sensitive and painful issue is God's gracious intention in marriage. We might even say his gracious provision that most of us are blessed to enjoy, but not all of us, for there are some here who have never married or some who have prematurely lost a life partner or who for some reason uh, find themselves single and alone. The opening words of our text throw some light on this matter, which I've called God's gracious intention for marriage. Did you hear the words? Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Whether we marry, whether we are single, whether we have lost a life partner and widowed, did not one God create us all? There's a picture here of God's supreme uh, covenant unity which we're being urged to reflect on. 
The fact that Israel had in common a father and creator ought to bind them closely together and make them suspicious of any attempts to break down that unity, which drives us back to God's gracious intention for marriage at the time of creation and how he wanted us to live. We always need to go back to the beginning, not dive into Deuteronomy where people are all sorts of chaos is prevailing. Go back to to the uh, beginning. Um, but the whole, it reminds me of those words which we've shared, by the way, from the uh, shorter catechism. The whole duty of man is to glorify God and enjoy him together. Our marriages should reflect our utter devotion to God and what it means to enjoy his uh, intentional provision, his plans at the beginning of creation. Now, this is one of those... Uh, let me come, by the way, to Matthew 19, which is one of the passages we often feel to. But this is one of those testing situations where the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus out. If you t- look at the Matthew 5 passage, you also got to look at the, the uh, Matthew 19 passage. Uh, listen to what Jesus says, or what the passage says. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus replied to this in their attempt to trap him, always one jump ahead of them. Haven't you read, he said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. They're very familiar words to us. Those who are familiar with our own marriage service Rightly and properly, they are uh, front and centre in the marriage service. What Jesus is doing here is taking them back to the beginning and God's intention for the human race right from the beginning. This is going back before the passage we read about in Deuteronomy 24, before all the chaos of people messing things up and breaking the covenant, which uh, which we read about in that passage from Deuteronomy 24. Now, this clearly didn't satisfy the Pharisees, and they pursued the matter. Why then did Moses command a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, listen very carefully to what Jesus says here. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, sinful, corrupt. But it was not this way from the beginning. And then we have those off-quoted words, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except in the case of marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, I want you to understand the culture in which Jesus is speaking, this outrageous attitude of the men of the day for any and every reason to break the covenant of marriage. This is what Jesus is honing in on. In other words, he's saying, Moses might have permitted divorce to cope with sinful human beings provide some safety net we might say in a society which will otherwise fall apart but to say that he commanded it is quite another matter indeed we need to remember the words here by the way marital unfaithfulness is an attempt to translate the Greek word porneia and it's no secret the implications of, of that word it may cover a whole wide range of meanings rather than merely sexual waywardness if we can put it like that so in other words Jesus is saying Moses might have had, might have permitted you but do not for a moment think that he commanded it there's a very great difference between permitting 
and commanding. Otherwise, by the way, do you understand what the implication was? That wives would have otherwise been abandoned and become social outcasts if they did not have a certificate handed to them. That was the culture of the day. The great leader, Moses, might have made this provision, but to suggest that it was part of God's plan for his covenant people is quite another matter. What is permitted must never be confused with what is commanded. Interesting to explore this issue, by the way, uh, of the certificate. To refuse to give his wife a certificate, or worse still, simply to abandon her, leaves her in a hopeless position. She cannot marry... She cannot live with another man because she will be considered to be an adulteress. And such a woman in Judaism, even to today, is called an agana. Not a very appropriate term. A chained woman, that's what it meant. She can't move forward in her life. A chained woman. It's estimated there may be as many as 16,000 such people living in Israel today. What a terrible, terrible treatment of the dignity of a woman to leave a woman in that situation. That is why the certificate was important, to not allow that horrific social um, catastrophe to develop. Well, it's evident that in Malachi's day, the covenant people had been abusing this mosaic provision, permitting divorce. According to verse 11, Judah had behaved treacherously by entering into foreign marriages as well. Furthermore, that they had broken faith in their relation to your wives, which according to verse 16, is that they were divorcing their wives. This is in fact a twofold sin, divorcing your wife, marrying a foreign wife, like giving allegiance to a foreign god. On both counts, they are severing the unity between which God intended and is stated there in verse 10. Have we not all one father? This is a question relating to God's order of relationships, but by marrying foreign wives or divorcing your, the wife of your covenant youth, uh, you are breaking faith with God, breaching the covenant. How important this issue is among God's people, isn't it? For us to reflect on this carefully, what does it all mean in terms of God's covenant people today? Marrying foreign wives whose primary allegiance is to another god, be it Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, or be it to uh, some other god, Baal, or Asherah, Baal's supposed uh, consort, or whatever, profanes or desecrates the Lord's sanctuary. That's what we're told here. That is, it is a callous affront to the holiness of God and desecrates the Lord's sanctuary, a source of contamination, as it were, among his covenant people. And so God says, I hate a man covering himself with violence, tantamount to breaking faith. So let me come to the positive side of this passage, for like always, the scriptures not only expose the problem, but they give us the remedy, and I call this a call to loyalty and keeping faith. On face value, this passage might uh, seem like it's only about God's displeasure on the subject of divorce and being unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's, by the way, how St Paul refers to the matter in the New Testament. If you go to 2 Corinthians 6, 14 following, a somewhat 
confronting passage for some people, but one which we have to humbly and uh, quietly reflect on. What does Paul say? Uh, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And then he adds, for we are the temple of the living God. It's a great, really powerful word to to reflect on. This is one of the great themes, of course, of Paul's letters. It challenges us to lead a life of holiness, to be distinctively Christian and not carried along by the, the culture or the spirit of the age. Someone has said that tragically in our own time, certainly in the last hundred years, one of the tragedies is, and there are painful reasons for this, that divorce has spilled into the aisles of the church. Well, here's a challenge to lead a life of holiness, to be utterly devoted to our wives, to do everything we possibly can to maintain the unity of God's people. You know, it's interesting we get used to the expression keep the faith, don't we? It's used in a whole range of ways. Sometimes it's political slogans, sometimes in the sporting arena where people who keep the faith, get behind the, uh, the Broncos or whoever your team happens to be, keep the faith. It's a good expression, by the way, a powerful expression. But how much more important in regard to Christ, he who laid down his life for us, that we keep the faith? When our behaviour and our relationships reveal disloyalty and compromise, how dishonouring this is to God. How much we let the side down when we allow people to ridicule the name of Christ. You've heard the saying, cynically, and he calls himself a Christian. You know what it's about, don't you? Someone who's let the side down, how tragic that is. It's interesting to reflect, by the way, on Romans 2.24, where he's talking about God's covenant people, and he he finishes by saying, St Paul finishes by saying, God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. Knowing what we've just read about, about their behaviour towards uh, divorce, hardly any wonder that the name of God is ridiculed among the nations. He's talking about the inconsistency between what the Jews professed and what they practised. They who prided themselves in the keepers of God's law, but their behaviour was something altogether different. Listen to the indictment against ritualistic Judaism. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, and if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed in the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who commit adultery, you who speak against adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? And then we have that powerful statement, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I suggest, by the way, that the title for this message shouldn't just be marriage commitments that are honoured. 
Maybe it should just be the whole of life should be honouring to God everything we are and everything we do. What a challenge this is to us this morning. What would our lives, the life of our church, look like if we really took this call seriously? Indeed, when we stand before God one day, will we be able to look him in the eye and say with confidence, Lord, I have kept the faith? Or will the epitaph on our tombstone simply read, one who has broken faith? Is it any wonder that God pays no attention or responds to our prayers when we live like that? Let me finish on a, on a positive note. The very expression, keep the faith, is a powerful one, isn't it? Indeed, the rock artist Bon Jovi took this as the theme of his album released several years ago. This was a single released earlier on in 1992 with the, with the title, I Wish Every Day Could Be Like Christmas. This is part of this general theme of keep, keep the faith. I found myself asking, what is it that you wish for if you are a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Not every day being like Christmas Day. What it might mean if you are truly devoted follower of Jesus. Now the expression keep the faith, of course, comes from, from the Bible, from a biblical source. It's found in Jude chapter 3. I urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. Contend, it's a strong sort of almost military word. Keep the faith, contend for it, be strong in it. Now, lots of, us can, can, uh, lots of things can lead us to break faith, to lose heart, to give up on God, to use a, a colloquial expression, and pain and suffering usually head the list. It's always the temptation. When we go through difficult times, it's just too difficult. We want to give up on God. I'm reminded of a man called Joseph Scriven, he was born in County Down in Ireland. Some of you know this story. Born in 1819. His father wanted him to pursue a military career, but God had other plans for his life. He entered Trinity College Dublin, that great institute, and uh, studied there. And uh, his life began to unfold in, in quite a different direction. He met at the age of 25 a young woman and uh, he was planning to be married. They were utterly devoted to each other, deeply in love with this woman. But in 1844, on the eve of the wedding day, his fiancée was accidentally drowned in the River Ban the day before he was due to be married. His life was shattered. You can imagine the horrendous sense of emptiness that must have followed that. But he resolved to make a fresh start in life and emigrated to Canada and Ontario where he taught in a school and acted as a private tutor. He's a deeply Christian man and he just decided to devote himself to serving God. Indeed, he gave himself to evangelistic and philanthropic work, preaching the gospel at crowded fairs and markets and working untirelessly for the poor and afflicted. It said that he would even give the clothes on his back to someone who was suffering. Indeed, it was around this time that he experienced another severe trial. He met another young woman, a friend of one of his students, uh, a woman by the name of Eliza Roche, and uh, they fell in love and planned to marry. But uh, she fell ill following a severe chill through swimming, and it led to three years of lingering illness, but in spite of all that was offered, the young woman died. Following this indescribable grief, 
you might wonder, what, how would this man respond? Indeed, it was around this time that his own mother in Ireland became very ill and he wrote a letter to her. And uh, in the letter he put a poem that he had written. Indeed, instead of being bitter, as he might well have been, overwhelmed with grief, he became even more dependent on God. The tragic experience of Eliza's death, as he wrote in the poem which he sent to his mother, led him to writing one of the most beautiful and most famous of all our hymns. And Lisa's going to play it to us in just a moment, the first verse. It is, of course, the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, All Our Sins and Griefs to Bear. We think about those who are suffering in, in Paris, in France at the moment, and anyone else who's going through a time of great grief. We're going to have a moment of just quietness as we finish. Think about this great passage. Think about the call to keep the faith and just be quiet for a moment as, as Lisa plays to us. Thank you. 